Well, I invite you to turn, if you'd like, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll look uh, this morning at uh, verses 3 down through uh, 6. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 6. Before we read it and look at it, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank You for Your Word. It's precious, it is everlasting, it is timeless, it is always perfect, it always accomplishes what You set it out to accomplish, and it's always our greatest need to process it, to have it driven down to the depths of our soul, to have it change us, rebuke us, encourage us, comfort us, whatever it is we need at the time. And so we pray that... Uh, what we do here over the next 30 or 40 minutes will be empowered by your Holy Spirit and that it will also be fruitful in each of our hearts and lives, that your name might be glorified and that Christ might be exalted and that your church might be built up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Ephesians uh, 5, uh, let's begin reading at verse 1. We'll read down through verse 6. Uh, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here, this is uh, a difficult passage in front of us. This is not a passage that uh, uh, I trust many pastors would like to preach on. It's definitely not a uh, a passage you choose if you're trying to gain popularity, make friends, or make your church uh, massive. I hope as we uh, look through this that we'll discover that there's one thing that God is passionate about in our lives, and it's not satisfying our worldly or earthly or fleshly cravings, but God is passionate about our holiness. He's passionate about conforming us into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, however painful that might be, and He's willing to uh, bring us words that sometimes can be difficult, cutting, uh, for sure, uh, they can indeed uh, uh, be hard to swallow because they force us to reckon with things in our own life. I love the language of C.S. Lewis when he writes about this whole process of God making us more like Jesus. He writes this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So, beloved, that's what God is doing with each of us. We may sometimes be surprised, Lord, I thought I had grown enough. Lord, I thought I had arrived at a point where I was holy enough and 
we find out that actually he's come to grade off some more edges because he's building this incredible palace. He's forming us into the image of his son. Uh, I want to uh, also mention that it's not possible to be too clean and holy in one's life. It's not possible. The Lord is, is really after uh, a, a, a life that looks just like Jesus, uh, pure lives, holy lives, lives that look godly, uh, that, that uh, look more and more like Jesus. It's not possible then to be too clean and to be too holy, provided it has humility. Now, we all might know Christians, maybe we are them or have been at some point, who are indeed cleaned up in their lives externally, but they're really proud of it. And so it makes their lives look messy. But we've also known those Christians who are really holy and clean and very humble. And it's just a beautiful thing to behold uh, the way the Lord has worked in them. That didn't come by accident in their lives. It involved likely a lot of pain, likely a lot of self-control in their lives, likely a lot of the work of the Holy Spirit and them working hard uh, on their lives. So in this passage today, we're looking at uh, what I'll just call negative commands, things that we're supposed to stop. Uh, this may sound, especially in our ears, where uh, in society we have a hard time giving grades to kids in schools. We like everybody to have a passing grade, right? Everybody can be an NFL superstar or an NBA star. Everybody's fully capable of doing anything that they ever wanted. Uh, at least that's what we're told in the world. And yet we come to this passage and we find God says, you know what? This has to stop. This has to stop. This has to stop. We can't keep doing this, period. Again, it may sound uh, odd to our ears. This is not the message we're going to get from the world uh, but indeed, this is what our God would like us to, to hear. And I want to uh, mention First uh, John 3, uh, verses 2 to 3. Uh, the Lord uh, gives us some motivation for actually becoming more and more holy. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes, everyone who hopes to see God face to face, purifies himself as God is pure as he is pure. So, beloved, we're called to purify ourselves, to grow in holiness. Uh, even though we may have come a long ways, we're called to go a lot farther. I want us to uh, just look at three things as we walk through this passage. We'll see, number one, a prohibition, things we're called to stop doing. Uh, secondly, a command, what we're supposed to be doing. And then finally, a warning. And uh, with that, we'll come to the end of the passage. So, first of all, a prohibition. Paul starts off this list uh, or, or the, this passage with a list of things that, were pro, that are prohibited in the Christian life. Uh, verse 3, but sexual morality, all impurity or covetousness. And then verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. There's actually six prohibitions that he said uh, we, we need to get rid of in the Christian life if we have them, or that shouldn't be part of it at all. Uh, the first one is sexual morality. It's, the word behind it is actually porneia in the Greek, from which we get pornography. It's the word for fornication, just all manner of of sexual sin. It includes sex outside of marriage, bestiality, homosexuality, pedophilia, prostitution, pornography, all of that, and, and the list could go on, right? Anything uh, that, that is uh, sexually related, any sin sexually related uh, that is outside of um, uh, uh, sex inside of a marriage, the Lord says it's wrong. So God created sex to be inside of a marriage, to be good inside of a marriage, and any misuse of that, any lack of self-control with regard to our sexuality, is indeed a sin that's called to have no place. We're not even called. To, we're called not even to speak of it. Let it not even be named among you. Don't even don't even talk about these sorts of things. Let alone do them, or think them. So Paul is saying that this is something we need to get out of our lives as Christians. Uh, it's a word that comes up often in the New Testament, uh, a couple couple dozen times. It's used fairly frequently. 
So that tells us that indeed uh, this is something of a problem for believers, uh, that this is uh, not something we face today, but indeed something that the Christians in their days, in the early days when Paul was writing this, faced as well, how to deal with sexual sin. And Paul's saying, don't let it even be named among you. Uh, the second thing that he says, don't let it even be named among you, is impurity, or rather filthiness or rottenness. The word is often used uh, in the New Testament in the context of sexual sins, which has led many, and I, I think myself as well, to believe that the primary area of filthiness that Paul is saying we shouldn't even think about or talk about uh, is, is uh, the area of sexual filthiness. We're not to fill our eyes and ears up with these kind of things, with the things the world wants us to fill our eyes and ears up. You can fill in the titles of books, of movies, of things like that, because if we fill our eyes and ears up with them, they're going to be coming out of our mouths too, right? And he says, I don't even want Christians to talk about these kind of things. They shouldn't be in our, in our conversation. They shouldn't be in our minds. They shouldn't be in our hearts, this kind of sexual filthiness that characterizes the world. Uh, our view of sex is to be one of a, a good, of, of cleanliness, right? That the marriage bed might be held up in honor and not defiled, but indeed kept pure. So Paul says, don't even talk about impurity. And then he says, covetousness, the third thing in this list that he doesn't want us to, to talk about, to have anything to do with, uh, is covetousness. It's literally the state of desiring to have more than one's due, insatiableness, one who desires to have more than is due. Another word is greediness, which is a really good synonym for, for covetousness. Uh, a greedy person, one who's described here, just never has enough. We might call them a malcontent. Uh, their job is never enough. Their marriage is never enough. Their health is never enough. Their, their possessions are never enough. Their bank accounts are never enough. No, nothing's ever enough. There always has to be more on top of more on top of more, and it never stops. They're, they're just lusting after the next thing. In fact, in verse 5, he actually writes, a covetous person is an idolater. Verse 5, who is covetous, that is an idolater. So what's going on inside the covetous or greedy person is an idol has been set up. It's not God. The person goes after that idol with all of their gusto, bows down to it, worships it, and says, uh, I, I'm nobody unless I've, I've got what, what my God is, unless I've uh, uh, received what, what I want. And in this context... I would argue that uh, the, the primary reference to covetousness, maybe not the primary one, but one of the references to covetousness has to do with sexual covetousness. Remember Exodus chapter 20, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Uh, there's a reason that uh, Moses wrote that, that the Lord wrote that, because it's possible to chase after or be greedy toward uh, 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 something sexually the Lord has said no to for us. Uh, and many commentators have, have thought as well that... that uh, uh, in this context, the covetousness is maybe primarily sexual covetousness. But in any case, what, what the Apostle Paul wants, what the Lord is telling us, beloved, is that if we find in ourselves this, this greediness, this I've got to have more house, I've got to have more uh, sexual fulfillment, I've got to have more car, more career, more family, I've got to have more, you fill in the blank, whatever it is. If we find that within ourselves... The Apostle Paul is saying, look, that needs to be jettisoned out. We need to be getting rid of these things. I don't even want Christians talking about this kind of stuff. That shouldn't be anything that we're focused on. And then he runs into this word, uh, filthiness. Uh, again, looking at verse 4, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk. And that word filthiness is simply obscenity. Uh, it's behavior which goes against acceptable moral standards. So it's anything that, that would catch people's attention. 
something very obscene that we might say or that we might do. Uh, and again, it's, it's usually for the purpose of trying to get people to notice us. Wow, did you see them do this? Did you hear what they said about that? Did you, did you see that kind of antic they did? Um, it it's usually has to do with, uh, or, or often motivated by, I want other people to notice me. I want to get their attention. I want to be somebody. And so we come up with the most obscene thing that we can do or say uh, to get people's attention. And Paul says it should have no place in our lives. It's out of place. It's not fitting, as he says in verse 4. Uh, the fifth thing that he talks about, the fifth prohibition, is foolish talk. Uh, we actually get the word moronic or moron from the word behind here. It's, it's moralagia, moronic words, foolish words, foolish talk. Uh, and it's, it's really thoughtless talk is another way of putting it. Mindless babble, mindless talk. Talk that has nothing to do with a godly purpose. Why am I speaking this to somebody? It's just filling the air up with words. Trying to, sometimes we might call it carrying on a conversation, but it, it's, it's less than that even. It's just, it's just talking just for the sake of talking, just for the sake of being heard. And again, Paul says, this isn't fitting for the Christian life because ours is supposed to be a life of, of words of encouragement, right? Words that build up. Uh, 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 words that, that convey truth, but also that convey love, not just mindless babble thrown up in the air. And then finally, he says, this is out of place as well for the Christian, crude joking. Um, another way of putting it is wittiness, or uh, one definition was buffoonery. <laughs> so uh, wittiness is simply this. The word literally has to do with turning, so turning a phrase. Um, if you've ever watched late night television, uh, many of these hosts are just, they're, they're experts at it, Right? Uh, the person they're interviewing says something, they turn the phrase around so there's a, a sexual connotation, so that there's some filthy connotation that the, the original person didn't mean. And then everybody laughs in the crowd. They think, wow, what a clever person, how witty they are. They're so, so quick-witted, they have great one-liners. And then they sell out the stadium and they, they, uh, they, they make tons of money at it. Uh, this, is, this is the kind of thing that he says shouldn't be a part of the Christian life, that we turn uh, double entendre, that we, we turn things around to mean something different and then quickly whip them back so that everybody can say, wow, how clever, how amazing you are, how, how, how dirty your mind is, is what the, Paul, the Apostle Paul would be saying. This is, this is not right. That's not how we use language. That's not how we talk to one another. We're not trying to turn something innocent into something wicked and evil, uh, even though we might be clever at it and good at it. We've got to get rid of this in our, our lives. Uh, Harry Ironside uh, tells this story. I think it's uh, helpful for understanding of, uh, of, of figuring out what we should or shouldn't say. On one occasion, I was attending a conference of Christians, and a number of us were guests at the home of a very devoted believer. As we gathered between meetings one day in the beautiful living room, a lady suddenly said, let's go out and see if our hostess would like some help getting the dinner ready. After the women left the room, about 15 men remained together. A man who had just come in remarked, since the ladies have left, there's a story I heard today that I would like to tell you. Before anyone else had a chance to speak, a friend of mine said, Just a minute, brother. There are no ladies here, but the Holy Spirit is here, and he is more sensitive than the most fastidious lady. Is your story fit for him? The man was big enough to say, Thank you, Mr. B. I accept the reproof. I will never again tell such a story. Again, uh, maybe uh, a bit of uh, hopefully helpful instruction regarding how we speak as well. Uh, are the jokes we want to tell, are the things we want to say inappropriate if someone else was in the room? Are we, are we going after them? Uh, are they inappropriate if the Holy Spirit's in the room? Because He always is. 
the Lord is always with His people. Uh, I, I don't want this to, to mean, and I don't think any of us should take that we shouldn't laugh, that we shouldn't uh, indeed have fun, that we shouldn't be those who indeed can joke around and enjoy each other's lives as Christians. That's not at all what the Apostle Paul is saying. What he's talking about is the kind of language which destroys people, which is just filthy and ugly and dirty in and of itself, the kind of language which God is not glorified by, the kind of language in which he would say, I didn't give you a mouth to say this kind of stuff. I didn't give you a life to go live this way, to think these things, to say these things, to do these things. That's the kind of stuff that the Apostle Paul is going after. Uh, we should indeed be those who are, who are delighted, who are fun, uh, who like to enjoy life that God has given us. Uh, pride kills joy and laughter. Uh, maybe, maybe the reason we don't have any joy or laughter is because we are indeed proud. We take ourselves too seriously, and, and we, we need to learn to lighten up. Indeed, the Apostle Paul isn't saying our lives need to be a killjoy, no fun at all. You can't tell jokes at all. What he's talking about is the kind of joking that's just crude, the kind of joking that's just not appropriate in the Christian life, the kind of jokes that the world laughs at. But God says, I didn't intend for what you talked about to be used as some sort of a joke. Uh, 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 that, that, that's not how you should be talking about those things. They're supposed to be for the benefit of others, not for throwing others underneath the bus. So he ends verse 4 by saying, which are out of place. So there, there just is a proper way. There's a, a fittingness. There's a proper way that Christians are called to live, to speak, and to do things. And there's a way that's just out of bounds. And Paul just listed the things that are out of bounds for the Christian. Interestingly enough, at the end of verse 4, he says, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And this is where he moves from a prohibition, what we're not supposed to do, to a command, which we're supposed to be doing. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, at first glance, this appears kind of, I hope it appears odd to you. For most of us who are reading this, you think, well, how is thanksgiving the opposite? Shouldn't he have said, instead of not naming this, here's what you should name. And instead of not doing these things, which are out of place, here's what you should do in, in, instead. But he says the opposite of of, of sexual immorality, of this crude joking, the opposite of all six of those things is actually thanksgiving. So do thanksgiving instead. Uh, it's an interesting uh, case study. This means that if you boil all six of the things we just looked at down, there's an element of ungratefulness in each of them. There's an element in each of them which is basically saying, I'm going to take, 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 and I'm going to go after something I don't have rather than be thankful for something that I do have. So all the, th all the six things we looked at, if you boil them down, part of each one of them is we're going after something that we don't currently have, but we feel like we deserve or that we should get. And instead, we need to be thankful. So what characterizes sexual morality and impurity and covetousness and greediness? What characterizes them is this. We feel like we deserve to have something sexually that God says you may not have. God says, look, I bought you with a price. Glorify me with your body. Don't join yourself to an idol because then you join Christ to an idol, 1 Corinthians 6. So he calls us to sexual purity. Beloved, when you come to Christ, we don't get to decide what we get to do sexually. God says, here's where it belongs. Here's, here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. Here's where intimacy belongs and anything outside of that is just off limits for the Christian. And, and, and we need to pick up our crosses, deny ourselves, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in that. Greediness or covetousness, same thing. Uh, 
what this is, is us saying, Lord, I, I deserve more. I'm going to chase after more. You owe me more. And, and what God is saying is you need thanksgiving. You need to actually be thankful for what you do have rather than chasing after what you don't have. You need to be thankful sexually for what you do have rather than what you don't have, materially for what we do have rather than what we don't have. In our careers, Lord, I'm thankful that you've called me to this. Lord, I'm thankful that you've put me in this station, that you've surrounded me with these people. Lord, I'm thankful for your provision to me uh, and, and grant them that I won't be greedy to chase after something that you haven't given to me. And with regarding to the, the, the filthiness, the foolish speech and the crude speech, so oftentimes uh, the reason we do these things is because we want other people to praise us, to think we're clever, to think we're funny. Uh, we want to get their attention. We want to put on the biggest show. We want to have the best story, even though it may be a, whole, a huge exaggeration and throw somebody else underneath the oncoming bus. Paul says, look, instead of going after other people's praise, just be thankful for the people that do love you and appreciate you. Be thankful for the fact that I love you and appreciate you. And let that be enough for your soul so that you don't have to use your tongue or your language to try and manufacture friends or manufacture people who might stand in awe of you. Just don't use your mouth for that kind of thing. Beloved, maybe the ultimate thing we're called to be thankful for is for our salvation. We should be thankful that God uh, only calls us to carry a small wooden cross on our shoulders, right? That he doesn't call us to carry the ultimate cross that Jesus carried, a cross that none, of, that none of us could bear. But he says, look, you pick up your small cross, you deny yourself, and you follow Jesus Christ. And when you follow him all the way to Jerusalem, like Jesus told the disciples, and when he arrives there, you'll see him bear a cross that, that you couldn't bear, a way too heavy for you and I to bear, a weight of eternal punishment meted out by an infinitely holy God whose wrath came right down upon Jesus Christ so that it wouldn't have to come down upon us. Beloved, that kind of thankfulness is where our hearts are supposed to be. Thankful for what God has provided us, thankful for what he's given us in the Lord Jesus Christ and all of this other stuff where we say, I need to get more. I need to get more stuff. I need to get more of this and that that should disappear under the weight of this tremendously thankful heart. Father, thank you for giving me this. Father, thank you for giving me uh, the family you've given me. Thank you for giving me the station of life you give me. Thank you for giving me eternal life in Christ. Now may I just be content. May satisfy my heart with you. Satisfy my heart with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last thing I'd like us to look at is the warning, uh, verses 5 and 6. Uh, let's take a look first at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So uh, he begins by, by saying, for you may be sure of this. So regarding whatever it is the Apostle Paul is going to say, we can be 110% sure of this. No matter what anyone else may say, no matter how we may feel, he is absolutely confident about what he's going to say. The Holy Spirit saying, look, I want to get everybody's attention. You can write this down, you can print it, you can send it all over the world, put it on the headline of every newspaper. This is absolutely certain. No doubt about it. Just you can, you can go all the way to the bank with this one. And it, the same words that are used in verse 3 then are here repeated. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness or greediness. Those three words are repeated. And he's saying that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is idolater, has absolutely no inheritance in, the, in, inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Period. End of story. So anyone whose lives are characterized by these things 
is not a Christian, no matter what they might think and no matter what we might think. Now, that, that's a weighty thing that he's throwing out there. It's a weighty warning, and I, I, I hope every one of us can feel this uh, so that we are spiritually benefited. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, said something which I think is helpful. Uh, the Apostle Paul is not saying that any man who falls into any one of these sins is eternally excluded from the kingdom. It does not mean that, thank God, but it does mean that if such sins are the characteristic of a man's life, if that is his way of living, if that is his atmosphere, if that is the realm in which he is happy and getting what he seeks for, then he has no inheritance at all in the kingdom of Christ and of God. We have got illustrations in the New Testament itself of Christian people temporarily falling into sin, but that does not become their habit, as it were. They do not go back to living in sin. Another commentator put it this way, what is envisaged here is the person who has given himself or herself up without shame or repentance to this way of life. It's simply the general character of their life, and they have made uh, no effort and don't plan to make any effort in the future at turning things around and repenting. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. This is clearly a call for self-examination. He's writing this to Christians. And one of the implications of it is it forces us to reckon with this. Am I living in sexual immorality? Is that the general air I breathe? Is that what I pursue? Is that what my heart goes after? Is that my general character? Am I cheating on my spouse? Am I addicted to pornography? Am I greedy or hungry for that which God has said no to in my life? Do I wake up in the morning simply to go after more possessions? Is my heart saying, Lord, I need more, 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 more? And our heart is never satisfied. Again, it's a clear call to self-examination. How, how is this with you? Where, where is your heart, beloved? Where's my heart? What do our lives look like? Uh, what is it we're going after? It matters. Paul's saying if the general character of our life is sexual morality, filthiness, or covetousness, then we're actually not Christians. Uh, if this describes us, if this describes you, then there is an encouraging call. Today can be the day of salvation and we can turn around. And the turning around looks like this, repentance. Repentance is go going from walking one direction, going from walking north to walking south. If we are walking east down the wrong road, we, we start walking west. That's repentance. And this very day, we can turn around and we can repent and we can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we can know the joy of repentance. If you're a Christian and we find ourselves doing these things, if we're a born-again Christian and we, and we think, wow, I'm sexually immoral, I'm filthy, I'm covetous, then here's what we can do. It's the same thing, turn around. And the fact that you will turn around and the fact that this kind of cuts you down to your heart and the fact that this doesn't sit well inside of our souls and the fact that we will make plans right now to turn around or in the future we will turn around from this, that is a great, or should be a great encouragement to our hearts that indeed this is not going to be the general characteristic of our life this is not something we're going to persist in, but it's just a temporary fall into sin like Lloyd-Jones referred to. And we might say, why such a harsh warning? <laughs> the Bible's filled with passages which sets our heart on fire, just sailing in the clouds. We can be on cloud nine thinking, I can't wait to get to heaven. God is marvelous. This is amazing. I have so much of the love of God and I feel so much of the love of God. Why such a, almost a, it's a hard word. Why, why does the Lord put this in, in a passage addressed to Christians, 
Uh, just imagine if you were uh, climbing Mount Everest, right? We have tons of people all over the world that are, that are doing it now and that want to do Mount Everest. But you're climbing Mount Everest and you're 50 pounds overweight and you can walk about two miles at the most, maybe three miles, but every joint in your lower body is just screaming in pain, right? And you pay the tab, you hire a guide, get all your passport stuff ready to go. The country of Nepal says, yep, welcome in and they helicopter you out there. You don't even hike in because you, you want the easy way, and you helicopter out to base camp, and they drop you off because you paid for it. And then you hike for about a day or two, and then you perish because nobody told you that if you're 50 pounds overweight and you can't even walk two or three miles without your whole body screaming, that you have no business being on Everest. You'll just die. It's just a death wish that if you can't even make the hike to base camp, you're never going to go to camps one, two, three, four, and let alone climb the peak. Uh, how would you feel about all those people who said, yeah, I'll take your money? You'd say this, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you warn me? I had no business being on Everest. Beloved, this is exactly what God is doing in our own hearts and lives for, for his people. He's saying, look, if this is the general characteristic of our lives, don't go on thinking that when you arrive at the pearly gates, you're going to get in. Let none of us, let no Christian go on thinking, let no one who claims to be a Christian go on thinking that, yeah, if my life is just nothing but sexual morality, nothing but filthiness, nothing but covetousness and greediness, that when I see Christ, it's going to go well, that he's going to say, I know you, welcome in. Let none of us think that. Paul says, you may be sure of this, that if that's the characteristic of our lives, then we're not going to enter the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. And you, there's many people who claim to be Christians yet who continue living in horrible sins thinking they have, they have the key to get in to heaven. And what they're going to find out unless they repent is that they don't have the key, that the key was faith in Christ and that faith comes, that faith comes accompanied with this genuine godliness, genuine growth, beloved, a desire for holiness. For some of us, the desire is stronger. Some of us will become more holy than others, but that's not the issue. The issue is, are we growing at all? Do we want to become pure like God is pure? Do we want to grow into the image of Christ at all? Are we striving to do just that? Then that's an evidence that we're a Christian, that is. But if we're unrepentant and if we have no desire for these things, then we're just not believers. And then in verse 6, he finishes up with this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, this is interesting. There will always be people, Paul seems to be saying, who will try to convince the church that those who live a life of habitual gross sin will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why would anybody want to do that? Why would pastors teach this? Why would uh, evangelists teach this? Why would Christians go out into the world and teach it to those around and why would Christians try and uh, teach other Christians these things? Uh, there's probably a few reasons. Number one, uh, people might teach this sort of thing um, that, yeah, you can be a Christian and live in these gross sins and everything's fine. They might teach it uh, to make themselves feel better or justify their own sin. So we think, well, I'm living in sexual sin or I'm living in covetousness, so I'm not going to say anything against that in anybody else's life because it makes me feel better. And we say, yeah, you're fine. Don't worry about running around on your spouse. Don't worry about the fact that all you do is wake up to make money and chase after material possessions. Don't worry about it. The one saying that might indeed be saying it to justify his own sins or her own sins. 
They know behind the scenes they're living a wicked life. Sometimes people say it to gain popularity, popularity with the world. Look what a message that would be. Can you imagine going out to the world around us and saying, look, you don't have to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. You just believe in Jesus. That's your get out of hell free card. You believe in him and you can live exactly however you want. I mean, the churches would be full, right? They, they would be packed. Everybody would be in. We, we all by nature would love that kind of message. So again, it's possible that people would teach that to others to gain popularity. But sometimes it's actually taught to other people in order to help them through what is a hurting and difficult time. And it's taught by genuine Christians who love someone caught in sin and are trying to help them. And they say, look, this is the general characteristic of your life, but, but don't worry about it. God loves you, and they're trying to help them and comfort them. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that if we love people, and if we love other believers, and we love people in general, and we see that the general characteristic of their life is just the same sin, stuck in sin, sexual morality, filthiness, drunkenness. You can fill in the list from 1 Corinthians 6 and from Revelation. We've looked at the list before. And filled with covetousness. Now, beloved, our call is to say, look, there's two, there's two paths, right? There's the narrow path that leads to life, and there's the wide road that leads to destruction. And right now, it looks like you're on that wide road, like you're headed straight to hell. So turn around, get off that road, and get on the narrow path. Indeed, it'll be painful. Uh, you know, we talk about the pain of persecution as the only pain. Beloved, self-denial is painful. It hurts. Self-control is painful. It hurts. Putting to death this old person is painful, and it will hurt. But beloved, what's the other option? We enjoy ourselves all the way down to the pit of hell, right? That's the only other option for a human being. Either it's the path of pain, self-denial, following the Lord Jesus Christ no matter the cost, and heaven as the result, glory to come later. Or it's do whatever we want now, live the life that we want to go after, titillate every sense, do whatever the world says is fun, and end up in hell forever. And that's the path laid out. And if we see somebody going down the wrong path, a member of our church, a friend, whatever the case might be, the most loving thing we can do is say, look, just turn around. Turn around. Just get off that path. Get on the right one. Repent and come to know Christ. Why is it so important? Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, because the wrath of God is coming. It's coming presently. I think one of the ways that God's wrath is displayed in the present is by the fact that everyone who chases after sexual immorality and filthiness and covetousness is never satisfied, right? No one has ever had enough sexual pleasure. Who makes that their God? No one has ever had enough money or possessions. Who makes that their God? That could be uh, just God's judgment in the present on that. Uh, they never arrive at a place where they're satisfied. But we know for sure in the future God's wrath will come again against such sons of disobedience in full fury, and it will be undiluted. God's wrath that's going to be poured out isn't going to be like the wrath of man. You know, sometimes when we see the wrath of man, we say, whoa, that was an overreaction. Whoa, that was, that was somebody out of control. Whoa, that was somebody who just lost their cool. That, that was somebody who, they had no reason to do that at all. But when God's wrath comes, it'll make man's wrath just pale in comparison. It'll make it look like just some little blip. God's wrath will make man's wrath look like happiness. But nobody will say 
God lost his temper. Nobody will say God's blowing his top. Nobody will say, how dare God do that? But everybody, beloved, is going to stand there and watch God's wrath be poured out and say he is just, he is perfect, he is beautiful in his holiness, and he is doing what is right. Every knee will bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on that last day. Everyone's going to admit that what God is doing is right and just. If we are a son of disobedience, if we're not a believer, and we refuse to repent of our sins, then we at least have to know this, that we're going to face the wrath of God someday, and it's not going to go well at all. If there's any of us here who have been kidding ourselves or who have been thinking, you know what, I'm a Christian, even though we're living in just horrible sins, then just know you're going to face God's wrath unless you repent, unless you turn around. That's for all of us in this room. There, there, there are no exceptions. We need to be sure of this. And it will be wrath where there's no abatement. After a thousand uncles, I give ups over a million years. It's not like the time is going to get shorter or God's going to say, you know what, you've suffered enough. It just goes on forever and ever. One of the, it's the most, maybe the, I think the most sobering teaching in the Bible. It's also a great call for missions, right? If we know this is what every non-Christian is going to face, then, beloved, this is the biggest call for missions. If we really believe in the doctrine of hell, it's, it's just impossible to go out into the world and look at people and say, I don't care how you're living. I don't care about you because we know if they die without Christ, this is what they're going to face, God's eternal wrath. It's going to come upon everyone who disobeys him. There won't be any signs of it beforehand. Remember, it comes like a thief in the night. It's not like there's going to be a warning sign. Hey, everybody, now mass repentance time because Christ is coming in 10 minutes. Nope, it'll be just like in the days of Noah. It started raining. It'll be like the thief in the night, right? You don't set out cookies on May 24 at 9 p.m. because you know the thief is going to come at 9.01 because he wrote you a letter, right? Now, the thief always comes surprised. He, he, he surprises you. He just shows up when you least expect it. That's how the judgment of God is going to come. So if we're, not, if we're living a life of gross sin, just turn around. Repentance. For Christians, I, I think it's tremendously encouraging to know this. God's wrath will not fall upon us. It fell upon Christ undiluted. It fell upon Christ with no mercy. And it fell upon Christ for our sins. That is amazing. This wrath of God, which is coming upon the sons of disobedience, it fell upon Jesus so it wouldn't have to fall upon us. And when it fell upon him, it fell upon him with no mercy. The father didn't abate one bit. He didn't withhold anything as far as his wrath goes against our sin from his beloved son, but he poured it all out, every ounce of it, so that there's nothing left for you and I to face. None of God's wrath will we ever have to look out. And now here's the call. Because God has done that, beloved, because he's poured all of his wrath out on his son and we'll never have to face it. Here's what we do. We pick up our cross we deny ourselves sexual immorality. We deny ourselves material things that the world and our flesh say we can't live without. And we follow Jesus. We pick up our cross. We deny ourselves that the world says you will have no happiness without. And our flesh says you will have no happiness without. We deny ourselves those things. We get rid of them out of our lives. And we follow Jesus all the way to the end because we've seen what he's done for us. Let's pray.